All right, at this time, I'd love to invite you to turn to the book of Acts that's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13. I also want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you didn't grab one of these nifty little communion packs on your way in, now is a great time to pick up one of those from this table here. Also, I want to remind you of these giving baskets here. Um, it's just been recently brought to my attention that people come here and have no idea what those are because we never talk about them. But just in case you were wondering, that's where you can drop your um, gifts and um, offerings there as you also grab those communion packs. Well, so good to be God's people together. Amen? Amen. As Miguel so wonderfully led us in that time of scripture and prayer earlier and also mentioned, yes, the heat, but this great time we had today at The Rock. For those of you listening online or joining here, I'll remind you that The Rock is a community center that is um, helped, uh, uh, kept up and, and worked through by many different churches and many different organizations here in our city. And um, this is a place where we do our clothes closet. And next week, you know what next week is? We are kicking off the first week of Rock in Summer, which is the summer program with a free meal and good times extending all the way through the summer. Different churches taking different weeks with the same group of kids that we have come to know and love and pour into these many years. So it's a, oh, it's a summer already. So we had a fun day today, and I'm glad to be here in some AC. Acts chapter 13, we're back in this series, taking another dip into the book of Acts, as we have on and off over the last few years. And for those of you that need reminding, because it's been a minute, Acts is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. And I love this middle portion of Acts that we've just kind of exited, but it's really driving the point home that Luke, who wrote these stories down, really wants you to see, I mean, everyone. We have political and national and ethnic different kinds of people. The good news is for them. We have economic and social disparity. No, the good news is for them. We have spiritual, religious enemies and infidels. No, no, no. The good news is for them too. Even haters and even the pious religious folks, everyone is inviting into God's kingdom through the reign of Jesus, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts is that story. Luke is saying it's really for everyone, even you. And now we dip into this second half of the book where he's really going to key on the every where portion of the story. Some people estimate that Paul, who was struck blind on the Damascus Road and gave his life to Jesus, he was temporarily blind and was led around. He saw the light, though, and he gave his life to Christ, and he became the apostle, the messenger to the nations. And so he lives up to this calling. It's estimated that in the book of Acts alone, he traveled about 10,000 miles before American Airlines and Chevy Malibus and minivans. This man was shipwrecked and jailed and opposed, but he who wrote that passage we read earlier is also going to live this message to bring the light, to bring the good news, 
even in the midst of opposition. So tonight in Acts chapter 13, we're going to see at least two things, and that's this. We're going to see a storytellers that come onto the scene that are going to be spreading this good news. So we're going to see these new storytellers, yet we're going to see how the good news hits another speed bump. This is another thing on the back half of Acts. It's moving and moving and moving and moving, and then it hits some opposition and a speed bump. But what I don't want us to miss, and we're going to read it in two chunks tonight, is the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to miss the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives, but Luke writes the first chunk of Acts 13 in such a way that we can't miss the Holy Spirit on the page. At each and every step, we see the guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to be, and I might leave some time off at the end for some Q&A or Q and response, because I'm already uh, not feeling great about standing up for a long time. It's a long day. So maybe we'll leave some time for some question and response, and we'll keep it moving. Amen? Amen. All right, verse verse 1, chapter uh, 13. Nope, wrong. Verse 25. (laughs) They returned to Jerusalem. They took John, also called Mark, in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so if you're highlighting or underlining, there's a Holy Spirit shout out. And what's the Holy Spirit doing in this community? Speaking. That's interesting. So the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. What's remarkable here is that the community is listening to the Holy Spirit by creating space. They didn't just haphazardly stumble into a gathering and all of a sudden over the PA, the Holy Spirit says, glad you're here. I need Barnabas and Saul. There is a posture within this community that created space, which should sound familiar, neighborhood church people. To create space is our fourth core practice. And we create space for God and others so that meaningful relationships can grow, that transformational relationships can grow. So when we say we're creating space for God, it doesn't mean that we're doing spiritual disciplines like worship, prayer, and fasting to get God to do what we want. No, no, it's the placing ourselves in a posture of worship, prayer, and fasting. So listen, so that God can do what he wants in us. Y'all are probably tired of this analogy, but in two weeks we're having overflow, which is for our students, that is based off of this metaphor of God filling us with his love and life and blessing, and out of the overflow, we go and love and bless and share life with our neighbors. Y'all are tired of this illustration I'm about to say, but I can't find a better one, so until then, I'll remind you. The reason these 
space-creating practices are so vital. It's because if you went to Chili's after church tonight, and you said, ma'am, can I please have a refill? You know what I'm about to do? And you sit there with your cup and start to do this. After a while, the manager is going to come and kick you out. Say, quit messing with our surfer, server. We're understaffed. But no, what do you do when you need a refill? You set it down so that it might be filled. Worship, prayer, and fasting are the setting downness required, not that we get God to do what we want to do, but so that God can do what he wants to do in us and through us. We look back on our life with Jesus and we say, well, I'm still just as mean and fussing and cussing as I was 20 years ago. I bet you it's a breakdown in creating space. When I was a young adult pastor at a church previously, can't tell you how many meetings I had, and I'd sit down with somebody that was in a bad way. i say, tell me about your journey with Jesus. And they say, well, I was saved when I was six. I was like, cool, you're 46. How's the last four decades treated you? And most often they realize that they never are creating space. They never were discipled to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. So it's so vital, parents, youth workers, kids workers, that we're cultivating this and normalizing this as what it means to follow Jesus. So when we read Acts 13 and we see a community fasting, worshiping, and praying, we shouldn't look at the page and say, whoa, that's crazy. We should say, oh yeah. Shouldn't a community of faith regularly try to put themselves in a posture, in a position, so that we might hear from God, and respond appropriately. So what we're seeing is a community creating space through worship, prayer, and fasting so that they may stay attuned to the Holy Spirit's voice. Listen, these are everyday people. These are fishermen that work 12-hour days. We had a prophet and teacher that was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was probably highly educated from an elite social class, And he's rubbing elbows with the brand new free slaves that are just as filled and gifted from the Holy Spirit. You have this new community of all different kinds of people. And here's the thing, sharing the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit then in Antioch is the same Holy Spirit today in Garland, Dallas, Wiley, Rowlett, Greenville, Fill in the blank. Everyday people, same Holy Spirit. If we're not hearing the voice of God, perhaps it's that we're not putting ourselves in a posture as well. So maybe there's spaces within our groups, within our collective space, that we need to create even more space. But these are the disciplines this community is using to stay attuned to the Spirit's voice. And here's what's wild. Somebody in that meeting probably said, Barnabas and Saul, those are like two of our best dudes. What? But they laid hands on them, which is a way of saying they ordained them. We had an ordination not too long ago with two new elders in Toby and Jason. The laying on of hands and ordination is saying, these people we've tested, we've seen the call, we've seen the gifts, and we are affirming down here what God has called from up there. So God has called them and equipped them to be prophets, elders, teachers, leaders, pastors, shepherds, missionaries, fill in the blank. And then the church 
catches the drift and we say, oh, okay, yeah, we think so too. So we lay hands, which is an ancient practice and precedent of saying the Holy Spirit has been filled, has filled you, has gifted you, and we are affirming this. And so we're setting you apart for this ministry. So these elders happen to be within this local church. So Lord willing, Toby and Jason aren't ready to go kick it on Cyprus, although it's probably beautiful in that Mediterranean coast. But for now, they're here, and we've affirmed them, we've laid hands on them, but the Holy Spirit sends two of their best guys, and they say, okay, because they've created that space, they're attuned to what's going on, and they're everyday people with the same Holy Spirit. The difference is they created space, and they're united together, and they recognize that the mission and the good news to everyone everywhere is more important than our comfort in our own gathered spaces. Ouch. Would we hold our people loosely to send them and turn them loose in our neighborhoods and world, trusting the Holy Spirit is with them and has called them? May we not be an impediment. The second observation about this community that I see are the names. Yeah, we know Barnabas and Saul, but the names of these other people. And this is why I love Acts. Because more than the Gospels, you start to see other people that aren't the 12. That aren't the headliners. That aren't the authors of all the books that would come later. You see people that are every day like you and I. That are surrendering to the Holy Spirit. And being filled and gifted to go and do what God has called them to do. So imagine... We're in a church like this, and churches in the first century would be no bigger than this, most often. And they're in a living room, dining room space where they would actually have a meal. So the Lord's Supper was a lot more than these little cups I got at Mardell. They would have a meal, they would gather together, they would lift a cup to King Jesus. Because Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. And this is what united them more than their socioeconomic status or their ethnic background. And they're gathered around and then they get a letter from Paul or Peter or James or Matthew or Mark or Luke that we call Bible. They called a letter from a leader that I know and have heard. And so Luke put down the book of Acts and it's circulating freely amongst the ancient Near East world. And so we're all gathered up in this dining room. We've just finished dinner. And then somebody's going to say, let's look at the next section in Luke's story. They couldn't come home with it because there would only be a scroll or two or a few. And so you had to hear it. You had to hear this story. You had to hear the Holy Spirit mentioned throughout Acts chapter 13 before there were chapters and verses. Now imagine you hear the name Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and you say, no way! My cousin's sister heard them speak at that one city, that one time. 
It'd be like people that you knew or grew up with or maybe saw on YouTube or saw somewhere else. These are the prophets and teachers that were known to them and they're everyday people like you and me trying to pay attention to God and respond appropriately. I love hearing the names. And so I want to remind you, everyday people, of this big idea that who you are and what you do matters in God's kingdom. I don't know what else Simeon wrote or did. I don't know what Lucius got up to after we hear about these prophets and teachers the Holy Spirit has called and equipped. But I know that they're written in this story and they mattered in God's kingdom. But what you may not know is that your story matters because the same Holy Spirit is partnering with you to write God's story. Because what Acts becomes is more than a letter circulated around. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit that filled these people, and they're written down on the pages of history. And I just got to wonder how many unrecognized, unnamed, unknown saints have gone unlisted in our world and in our Twitter, and in our Instagram feed, but God knows their names. I heard a story recently when I was at a retreat with Jesuits. Have you heard of Jesuits? My Catholic brother just started raising or shaking his head, my formerly Catholic brother. Jesuits are a order of uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. 500 years ago, he started this group of priests within the Catholic Church that have a special kind of teaching and practices. And it's the most, um, I think they have the most uh, in that order. So monks, brothers, priests, they're Jesuits. So they have a retreat house, and I was hearing this story of this Jesuit, and they didn't say his name because they didn't know his name. But they know him and his example. And there is a Jesuit brother they were talking about that entered into this religious life much later in years because he was married, he lost his wife, so he commits and consecrates himself to this priesthood in the Jesuit order later in life. But he's a brother, not a priest. So he's like, just a step below the guys that can do communion and teach and lead and do all those things. He's a brother, not a priest. They assign him a post at a university, but he's not a professor. He's a porter. Does anyone know what a porter is? It was a silent retreat, and let me tell you how hard it was with I didn't have my phone. And he said he was a porter. And I said, I don't know what a porter is, and I can't look it up right now. A porter, Mark, you know, is a doorman. He wasn't a professor, he was a porter. He's not a priest, he's a brother. And literally, he gives his whole life and consecrates it to the church, and they say, we have a special task for you. You're going to be a doorman at this one learning hall at some university. That was his life. That was his calling. They laid hands on him and said, go to that door. And yet... After he died, and only after his death, did they realize that this man became a sort of unofficial, local, legendary saint. Because after he died, they found his journals, and this phrase was written in many ways and in many places throughout. It says this, Every time I open the door, 
I imagine I'm welcoming Christ in every person who enters in. This unnamed brother, not a priest, porter, not a professor, sitting at a door and giving his life to the door is actually giving his life to Jesus because every time he opened that door, he looks at them intently, he greets them with love and compassion and kindness because he's greeting Christ, Christ in this person. And to me, I think about your story, my story, our church's story in this little corner of DFW, and I just got to believe that it matters even if we go unnamed, unrecognized, unlisted, because when we do the very least in the name of Jesus and for Jesus, God knows, and I believe that we're on his list. And this is why rock parties matter. With Moses Uvere giving his all for a long concert. He said he would do 30 minutes. He did like 50 minutes because he kept saying, do we still have time? And we said, yeah, yeah, we do, we do. And he's out there sweating. That matters. But just as much as Pat, who has rolled up 100, 200 hot dogs and greeting people that came for water, literally giving people cups of cold water, she and Angel and others, in Jesus' name. It matters, it matters. It matters for this moment. It matters in your life. And how would this mindset, this kingdom vision, affect your view of our neighbors and your world? Because the thing we gotta understand with this community and ours is that the kingdom that we are a part of is upside down. Which is why when they live this way and love this way, you're going to expect speed bumps because the kingdom of God is upside down welcoming the least and uniting as one but we've got to expect some opposition in the few minutes we have left I feel like this story is just better read and heard I'm going to try not to comment too much on it so I'll read it and I'll leave some time for some Q&A but I want to talk about the gospel and how it matters in spite of opposition and distortion. So let's see what Barnabas and Saul, who's going to really lean into his new name, Paul, let's see what they get up to after the Holy Spirit sends them out. So the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. There's that again, the Holy Spirit guiding and empowering every step. They went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island. By the way, are you getting that everyone, everywhere bit? That's how the rest of this book is going to go. It's like a Jason Bourne movie, man. Every five seconds you look on the screen, they're in somewhere else. So they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Pause there. It's very common for these ruling elites to in all their great wisdom surround themselves with different shades and stripes of other learned men. They would have magicians and sorcerers, and before you think, oh, silly, silly, 
you got to understand this time period, that was really the best kind of scientific divination. These kinds of things, they were grasping beyond what we could see and observe with the naked eye. So they wanted all kinds, all different kinds of help, and this is what was available to them. The difference is these kinds of people would traffic in all these other kinds of things that human beings just simply cannot and often should not really dabble with or understand. And so as I'm reading this this week, I can't shake the idea or the image of a character from Lord of the Rings. If someone was playing Pastor Adam Bingo, we've gone a long time without a Lord of the Rings reference. But I know John knows what I'm talking about, the character Wormtongue. You remember, he was like real greasy-haired. He was kind of greenish-skinned. The man's name was Wormtongue, for goodness sakes. But his whole job was this shadowy, kind of whispery, uh, wise counsel for the king. And this particular king was literally under a spell. And I think J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a believer himself, understood the dynamics of power and spiritual, political, social, economic um, things that opens the door where when people have power, they want more of it. And the more power, the easier it is to distort and corrupt. And Wormtongue was actually, and this was in a deleted scene, was actually working with even darker and more insidious forces. I'm losing you. I'm losing you. Are you still with me? If Amy was here, she, she's with the kids tonight, she would be rolling her eyes and groaning. So I'll just land the plane. It's like Wormtongue whispering into the ear. You got it? Okay, good. This is this guy. Let's hear his name. Next. I was going to go for another five minutes. I love those movies. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Why? He says, bring me Barnabas and Saul. Let me hear something new. But what happens when they hear something new is this guy thinks, I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my seat at the table. And so he's opposing this. The irony is that Christianity is a Jewish movement. And this is a Jewish sorcerer missing the Jewish God who sent the Jewish promised Holy Spirit from the Jewish Messiah King. And so the sad irony is somehow, and let the reader and hearer understand, Sometimes we get so wrapped up with our political and economic gain that we miss the Spirit of God moving. We end up opposing the work of God because we've loved power and politics more. So he opposes them. He doesn't want to hear whatever new word from God is. He's fine where he's at, thank you very much. So then Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the what? The who? The Holy Spirit. Again, Luke, you may miss him in your everyday life. Don't miss him on this page. Looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? This has happened in the book of Acts before when someone like Peter and Paul look intently at a person. There's a sense in which the reason why he mentions the Holy Spirit is that they're discerning something ain't right. 
Have you ever had an experience where you've entered into something or you're talking with someone and you're just like, man, this is beyond a brick wall. This is some, something is clouded and dark here. This is what Paul is experiencing here. And so he just calls a spade a spade and says, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. In 2 Corinthians, we said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Do you know that whatever we can make of demonic forces or oppressive forces, whatever they are and whatever they're up to, I'll tell you, it's in opposition to the love and peace and righteousness of God that's making its way more and more on earth as it is in heaven. There are some forces in political and economic and personal spheres that are opposed and don't want to give up a foothold to the truth and beauty of the good news. And so here's the speed bump, and Paul looks it right in the eyes and looks what happens, look what happens next. Now the hand of the Lord is against you, he says. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Irony number two. The guy who said this was so wrapped up in his own political and economic powerful seat at the table. He came from the Jewish tradition, from all the best Jewish teachers. He knew all the Jewish scriptures, and he saw Jesus and said, not a Jewish king. And when Jesus met him on the road, Jesus looked at him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he saw a light, heard a voice, and couldn't, what? See. So Paul, the blinded, now is some vehicle bringing blindness on this other person who is opposed and led others astray as well. And so he's going to have this temporary blindness, and there's some way in which, <laughs> this is not an everyday occurrence, but Luke and those gathered can't miss the one who is trying to lead this person astray is now having to be led himself. So the story continues. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When he, the proconsul saw what had happened, he what? Believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. What I love about this gospeling is I'm not sure this learned proconsul looked at all the facts and scriptures and by reason and theology said, yep, Jesus is the rightful king of all. I think he was hearing, I don't know if he heard anything else. But when he saw that, he was like, yeah, this, there's something going on here. That's why in our church, we talk about declaring and demonstrating the good news. What's the good news? Well, in one word, the good news is Jesus. That's where it's all pointed. What's the good news? Jesus. Who he is, what he does. We'll get a little more specific. The gospel in three words is Jesus is Lord. That meant something in Paul's day. When everybody went around and said, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. He gets our allegiance. We pledge allegiance to him. To say Jesus is Lord is to say, okay, fine. That's fine, Caesar. Go sit down. Jesus is Lord. How did Jesus become Lord? Well, y'all count for me. Let's look at the gospel in 38 words. Here's a summary that we would say at the neighborhood church. The gospel in 38 words is this. The good news, 
That's what gospel means. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth, and all people are invited to live in God's kingdom, filled with God's spirit and free from sin and death. This is not advice. This is an announcement. And we declare this. Jesus is Lord. Great. God bless the USA. But Jesus is Lord. Go vote. Great. But Jesus is Lord. He's the banner under which everything else falls and we live and move and have our being. Not always to the exclusion of, but get real clear that Jesus is number one. That's what it means when we say, I give my life to you. And so that's why as we round home and have a moment for question and response, the next week at Rockin' Summer, I don't even know if y'all knew this, Toby set out to do a new kind of curriculum this year. She's the one who oversees um, Rockin' Summer. And the question, the theme is, who is Jesus? Jason sent me a long, lengthy text about all the passages and themes and ideas. And he says, but it basically boils down to this. We want our students to walk away understanding and groping with this question. Who is Jesus? Next week at Rock and Summer with our kids and our neighbors, who is Jesus? Monday, it's nativity, birth. And then Friday, it's resurrection and on. Am I right? The life, death, and resurrection. Youth, the following week. Who is Jesus? Here's my last thought I'll leave you with. Well, who is he to you? There's going to be a lot of political distortion. There's going to be a lot of spiritual distortion. Get it straight. So the gospel is less of a gentle persuasion. And sometimes, like Paul does, it's more of a radical confrontation of sin, evil, and darkness. When we're within our neighborhood, it's okay to say, hey, this addiction and this violence and this anger is killing you and your family. We want to say, give your life to Jesus. Let him transform you. When you give your life to him, he gives his life to you. We're confronting this brokenness and allowing him to put it back together. And by the way, just so we're clear, the gospel isn't just about making mean people nice but about making dead people alive, coming to life again through the power of the life-giving Spirit of God. So, who is Jesus to you? I'd like to open up, is there any questions or responses, or does anybody want to share in a statement who Jesus is for you? It's going to become more important as we keep on doing this thing together that we get that straight if we get that straight, I think we'll do just fine. Any questions, comments, or responses? Who is Jesus to you tonight? We haven't done this in a while. Remember when we used to do this outside? He's your teacher. Amen. Say that louder, Mark. He's the only acceptable intermediary between God and man. Yeah, he's our priest, our prophet, our king. Yeah, John. He's a step? Okay. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But what? Yeah, that's good. That's good. He said Jesus is a step. It's a step to get to God. But a lot of people miss it. A lot of people trip on it. Incidentally, they, Paul talks about that. He's a cornerstone that so many people are stumbling over. Yeah, I like step. What else? Yes, Debbie. Jesus is everything. He's our Savior. The great physician, amen. The one that knows us and loves us. Amen. Yes. Maybe a couple more, one or two more. Forever forgiving friend. Yeah. He's my hope for more, that, he's, that there's more to life. He's my hope for, yeah. It's good. Amen. For me on days like today and seasons like this in our church, he's my sustainer. That word, I've been praying a lot, thinking a lot. He sustains us. The word of his power, like when we're faithless and we can't do this, he's still sustaining us, surrounding us. I hope that this week and next with our students and our youth, our young ones, would you pray that they would have similar answers? Would you do that in our response time in a moment? Would you also pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you who Jesus is, that you would cling to that? There are so many voices, sorcerers or otherwise, that want to dissuade us and distort us. And I say often, and Carla and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, when I was finishing seminary 11 years ago, I thought I knew so much. And 11 years on, I know a lot less but the things I do know, I'm more certain of. And one of those is who Jesus is and the need this world has for his life, his love, and his light. So may we be a people that brings good news, the good news of Jesus. May we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And may we bring this gospel to every kid this week at Rock and Summer, every student in two weeks, that the good news through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that they would know that He's the reigning Lord of heaven and earth, and that they and all people, everyone everywhere, are invited to live in God's kingdom, to be filled with God's Spirit, and to be free from sin and death. May we be a gospel people, and may we declare and demonstrate good news through Christ our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Our story matters because God is writing his story with us. He has created us and called us by name to bring his light in the darkness, to speak his truth in the wilderness, to bring his hope for the hopeless. Now may God give us strength in our weakness, peace in our trouble, and boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus that brings eternal life to all who see, believe, and follow. Go in peace.